Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to have you all here. Thank you for those who are joining us online as well. Um, and uh, I just wanted to, uh, I'm going to do a quick little recap before we get started, um, and then kick us off with a, with a little story that I think is important for us to keep in mind. Um, but it's so good to be uh, together today, to be able to um, just enjoy the company of God's people in one place. Um, last week, what we did is we introduced this series that we're calling Righteous Resistance, and we recognized that before we can resist anything, we have to become oriented towards that's, that which should be resisted. And so we find ourselves in the overall context of this broken world. It's fallen, it has been completely disordered, disoriented, and bent towards chaos. Chaos, taking advantage, typically in the midst of that, of the most vulnerable in our social spheres. And as people of God, we have been uniquely positioned and called to resist this disordered way of the world. That we would resist injustice to establish justice. That we would resist inequity as a norm. And fortunately for us, the Bible is very focused and helpful at addressing this. And so we have multiple examples over and over that we get to pull from this to see the ways in which we are supposed to see it play out there and then look at ways that we have seen it in our day so that we can apply it then today. So if we are to resist injustice, what is biblical justice? And we establish that a little bit last week, so I'm going to recap that. First, that it's built on the truth of the Imago Dei, that we were all built in the image of God, and that everyone made in the image of God has an unearned inherent right that that God in us should be honored and dignified. The second thing is that justice is always, almost always, I should say, not 100%, but almost always, um, coupled with this idea of righteousness as defined by God, that the idea of justice means that things should be right or in a upright, corrected, not in a crooked path. That's where our word crooked, that we use that all the time, if someone's acting crooked, but in a straight path that we would be going in the direction in which God has ordered it to be. Third, that we are compelled to get in, involved. We're not allowed to ignore injustice when we see it, that God tells us over and over again to uh, insert ourselves in those situations to create justice where it does not already exist. And then fourth, that it is focused intensely on what was called the quartet of the vulnerable. Um, That's what scholars tend to call it, but it's this over and over again chorus that is sung throughout the scriptures that widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor should be considered uh, a, a focus of who we are supposed to impart justice for, and that they should never be in a social landscape wherein they feel that they are being taken advantage of. The last thing is that it involves those with power, ability, monetary means, position, to seek out the vulnerable, to move in their direction, right? Not just sit back um, and wait for that to come towards them, but to move towards the most vulnerable and to specifically, the word mishpat means to take up their burden on their behalf, all right? So that's kind of what we covered last week. Today we're going to look at one of the most striking, most obvious, most um, well-known stories in the Bible, um, and it depicts righteous resistance uh, inside of the, the beginning and end of this entire book, but specifically the one that we're going to look at is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Has anyone heard of it? Y'all are good church folk, right? You've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Before we jump in, what I want to do is start with this real quick story. Um, I was, it was probably, I don't know, like in one of those youth camps that, that you go to, it was one of the first things I did as a Christian. We had a speaker there. Um, his name was Pepe Montenegro. This was in San Diego, or right outside of San Diego, uh, at this camp called Pine Valley. And I remember this story that just hit me 
so hard when he told it. And it wasn't, kind, it wasn't really like the main teaching. It was just kind of the side thing that he was saying. Um, but Pepe was uh, affiliated with a gang where he had grown up. And he decided when he came to know Jesus that Jesus was asking him to remove himself from that affiliation to, re- to get out of that gang. Well, if you are in any way familiar, even as a secondary kind of uh, you know, proximity to gang life, you don't just get to choose in or out. If you're coming out of it, there has to be a recompense, a payment for that. And so he knew that he was probably going to get beat up and even the possibility that his life could be in danger when he went to that group of people and said, hey, I'm going to step out of this. So Pepe goes to them. He says, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm out. They said, oh, I don't know if you can just do that, Pepe. We're not going to let you do that. And then uh, he's wandering around doing some other things, and they go tell the rest of the crew. And there's this, this moment where he says he's, he's standing in front of, um, it, down this alleyway. And as he's walking down the alley, he looks behind him, and he can kind of see like there's a chain link fence here. He had walked through this one thing, but he could see a guy walking pretty far back there behind him. Eventually, he realizes that he's being kind of blocked in, and that there's a line of dudes standing in front of him, all people from that gang saying, man, you you don't just get to step out like that. Someone's got to pay, and you're going to pay with their flesh. So this guy blocks him up, locks the gate, comes in front of him, and he said, he's like, all right, well, like I knew this was a possibility. I, I, I haven't changed my decision. I'm leaving this thing. And he said he just kind of like got himself ready. Okay, this is going to happen. Let's do this. And so he kind of stands. He said he got ready to, to fight as best he could on the way out, and uh, out of nowhere, they all just start yelling, turn around and run. And so Pepe said, like, I never knew what happened in that moment. Like, I was like, oh, like, all right, man. Like, I must have been, you know, really put it on. They got scared. They were like, nah, we can't take Pepe. We got to run. He's like, but they had like 12 or so people with him. And so a few years later, he was 20 years out or so, and he ran into one of those guys and kind of, you know, like, we're cool. Yeah, we're cool. I mean, that was, you know, years ago. I don't remember. I don't think anyone remembers who Pepe Montenegro is. And he said, dude, what happened that day? I said, what do you mean what happened that day? Like, you showed up with a crew of people. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, man, standing behind you were some of the biggest dudes I had ever seen in my life. And there was like eight, nine, ten of them, and they were ready to fight. And Pepe is like, man, the only way I can explain this is I think there were angels that just appeared that day just long enough in just in a way that would communicate what these guys need to know. You're not going to mess with Pepe. They never touched him for 20 years. And I remember him telling that testimony because it's so uncommon for us in our day to understand that there are spiritual implications behind the physical things that take place inside of our lives. Now, I, I wanted to double check this. This was years, so I found Pepe, and you can find him on YouTube <laughs> right now. He, he, I couldn't find the actual testimony. I just remember all of it from that moment in there. I remember taking notes as a kid and just being like, wow, like God is powerful. He could really show up, manifest himself physically if he wanted to in a way that helps people do things that, that God is calling them to do. And so I want to remind us who tend to be in, in a place that in our, in our modernist influence mind that we don't tend to think of those things as realities in our day right here and now, right? Maybe some of us do, but for the most part we don't. But the scriptures, and especially Daniel as we're about to read, and especially all throughout Daniel, and then interpretations of Daniel later on, there is a lot going on in the spiritual realm that's unseen that we don't see. And so it's assumed that in Daniel 3, as we read this, I want to invite you to open your Bibles now, Daniel 3. We'll have it up on the screen, but if you have your scriptures with you, go ahead and turn to Daniel 3 right now. It's important for us to remember that there are spiritual things going on behind the scenes in the physical when we're dealing with it. And we'll come back to this here at the end. 
Well, in Daniel 3, the context is this. God's city, Jerusalem, has been invaded by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They completely came in, took over everything. Uh, they have taken slaves from God's people. They, they are in what's considered exile from the perspective of the Jewish people. And they spend a long time, multiple decades, in exile under the rule of Babylon. And so what they've done is some of them, they have, they've killed, they've taken some of their leaders, Daniel and three of his friends, some of the highest, brightest, most um, good-looking even as part of that because there's influence in these things. They've taken them and they've begun enculturating them. They're trying to re-educate them, give them different foods. They're trying to give them different, uh, a different language. All of these things are meant to, in, uh, in some way, shape, or another, to assimilate God's people into the Babylonian lifestyle so that they just eventually become them. And the God, God's people, the Hebrews, uh, the Jews, would be no more. They would not be remembered ever again. And this happens hundreds and hundreds, thousands of times throughout history to all kinds of groups of people. God's people are no different other than the fact that they are God's people, all right? And so they land in this, they're living in a land that's not their own. The culture is attempting to bring them in, enculturate, and assimilate them. And this whole chapter, this is something I think is important, this whole chapter, and we're going to read through the whole thing, it's one narrative, is a story that is known in the Near East. It's a specific genre, a type of story, like you would listen to a true kind story, or you might listen, watch a, a suspense movie or thriller or something like that. They have a genre that is called a court conflict. Meaning that what plays out throughout this chapter has some semblance of a trial. Now, it takes place in public, not in a court of law, but it takes place in public and that there is a conflict at the center of it. So this trial conflict taking place pits God's people against the power of an existing empire. You're going to see the same thing, actually, when Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. They actually parallel each other in their storylines. So if you want to check that out later, we're going to do uh, Daniel chapter 3 today. Watch out for the court conflict pattern. There's an antagonist who, one, demands conformity. Become like us, makes a threat to that conformity if you do not do it, and then attempts to fulfill the threat that they made. And both of those play out in Daniel 6 and Daniel 3, and it is met by a refusal to conform by God's people, an assertion of faith that Yahweh will provide or protect, and in the end, ultimately, is meant to reveal God's power. All right? Pay attention to this pattern. Pay attention to this idea, this kind of trial conflict that's taking place. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial, pro, provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Remember, there's physical or there's spiritual behind the physical. So there's an ordered group of people he wants to bring in and have them all bow down to this image. Now, this image was giant. It was this physical statue made and intended to be worshipped. The text says that the height was 60 cubits and, and, and its breadth was 6 cubits. Um, different translations will give you different measurements, but it's about a 90-foot tall structure. That's three school buses stacked on top of each other, right? 
or nine stories tall, if you're familiar, kind of if you could, could put a building inside of that. And the text says that it was specifically set in a plain that they called Dura. So imagine what's happening. It is a flat area with a giant statue rising up in the middle. So the flatness accentuates the fact that this thing is three school buses high, and it was meant to be uh, 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 seen by all who came in, that it was set outside of the city in this plain intentionally so that everyone as they were traveling in would see this thing and be in awe and wonder. Now, it was made of gold, but we don't know exactly what it was. Was it a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar? Maybe. Was it a statue of some sort of god or deity, Baal being one of the main ones? Some people believe it was simply just an obelisk, a shape that was built up. And in the end, we don't know. What we know is that King Nebuchadnezzar meant for it to be worshipped. Verse 3 goes on, it says, again, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Now imagine them all around on the plain, staring towards the center at the statue. Verse 4, then the herald loudly proclaimed, and I don't know if it's just me, uh, but I don't, this, this herald kind of comes across as, ki- as the king from uh, Hamilton. You know how he comes in and it's just like this silly little guy who's, um, you know, proclaiming things. But hear ye, you know, hear ye. And there is a bit of comical intention in this by its exaggeration and all the different aspects of it. It is meant to be kind of comical in its presentation like a play might be. So then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations, catch this, and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into the blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and the peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, you catch to the repetition. That's like this chorus. It's this idea of repetition going on in here. So all is going well in the kingdom of Babylon, right? They are re- the, the residing, maybe, maybe Assyria, but they work together, is kind of on their side. They are the residing superpower in the area. Their king has issued a decree, of conform- a decree to conform, to unify around something. And then he has supported that with a grand gathering of worship, all kinds of music. Like the pomp is huge in this. They want to make it loud. They want to make sure that everyone can see the, uh, the, the object in the center of this plane. They've ordered the ranks. Catch that. That there is a set order of ranks going on and they pull out no stops. They didn't just have a horn, a pipe, a lyre. They busted out the trigon, y'all. I mean, I don't know what a trigon is, but it sounds pretty crazy, right? This, this means that they, they wanted to make sure that everyone realized what was going on, but then they got the harp, they grabbed a bagpipe, some kind of every piece of music inside of their culture all collected as one, and he has enforced this decree with a severe and violent threat. And when the music plays, everybody bows down. Almost everybody. Verse 8 says, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Again, King George just whining, right, in the background. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever, right? They do their their duty of making sure the king knows whose side they're on. 
Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down, the worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews among you who have set over the affairs, who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. He names them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Now, as everyone bows in this giant crowd of people, a few don't. And what you have is a very direct uh, comparison. Like just as this statue looks in the middle of the plain, a bunch of people standing up. If I were to have all of us stand up and tell two or three of you just to stay up, and then all of a sudden play a bunch of music, kill the music at once, everyone sits down, but two people stay standing. Now they are the things standing up very noticeable in a sea of people on the ground. And so you can imagine the people like, whoa, whoa, hey, the music stopped. Hey, man, the music stopped. You got to get down. And they're like, yeah, we know. And so they just stand there like the monument in a plain of people bowing to this thing. And it accentuates. There are some people who are not conforming to your decree, King Nebuchadnezzar. He says this. He responds with furious rage. Let's consider the reaction here. King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful human being in the world at this point. In the last chapter, he learned of a dream that questioned his and threatened his power and sovereignty, so there's a little bit of insecurity in that king. He knows that there's prophecies being told and and that God's people are actually the ones to help him interpret that. He just built a nine-story image to symbolically fortify his power. Three foreigners deny him, and it throws him into a royal temper tantrum that is a furious rage. And so listen, it is almost always true that fearful leaders, those second-guessing their own power, and the social structures they create tend to react with immediate aggression and force when they are threatened. He's posturing to some extent. I mean, he has a lot of power, but in the end, what's being revealed is he didn't have power over three people. And so Nebuchadnezzar's treatment of these three is on display. It pulls down the idea of of the strength that he actually has. It reveals his own insecurity, possibly understanding that he is losing power, so he turns up the heat, literally and figuratively. The king decides to give them one more chance, most likely trying to save face. Verse 14 says this is what happens. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you, do not des- that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing fire. Then, listen to this, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. 
Isn't it interesting that the one who has self-proclaimed his own sovereignty is about to have an encounter with the one true sovereign king of the universe? He has no clue what he's setting himself up for. One commentator says this. He said, here the king asserts his own power above all gods, and we can imagine the god of creation raising his eyebrows and emitting a slight chuckle. Like, are you serious? The three friends are not quite ready to laugh because they're standing their ground and they're looking at a furnace. It's, 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 it's a, a consequence of, of a rather startling situation. So verse 16, this is what happened. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Verse 18 is powerful, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, I love this cool calm, collected response. It's like this deep contrast to this angry king who is blowing up in front of this people. And then the the three not only feel so confident in the truth of what they're doing, but they begin to poke at the bear. When When you want an already furious king to just lose his mind in anger, you refuse to give in to his best attempt at making you afraid of him. And he's trying as hard as he can. This is like unfazed, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's exactly what happens. They don't fear, and this is what takes place as a part of it. In, in, in conjunction with the stated pattern, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not just going to try to make a threat against you. I'm going to fulfill this threat. Continuing in verse 19, he says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter. The language is intentional by the writer. He wants it to reflect metaphorically what's happening in this king's heart, that he is getting angrier and angrier. And so let's burn that furnace hotter and hotter so that it illustrates the exasperation of this king. And then it says this, he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers and his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, their trousers, their turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Can you imagine being one of these three men? You're bound up, you're being carried by a bunch of soldiers up to, and being delivered to the furnace, brought into it to be dropped into this blazing fire. And you're just like, hey, do you, do you feel heat? It's like, no, I don't, I don't feel any. Do you feel anything? Nope. But in contrast, the soldiers are melting around them. They feel nothing. They get thrown into the fire. And verse 24 says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, your majesty. And he said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. So there's a fourth man. 
Yahweh intervenes. Yahweh rescues. Yahweh establishes himself as the God of salvation. And the text doesn't tell us for certain who exactly that fourth man is. It could be an angel, maybe the pre-incarnate Christ. But what we do know is that it is a representation of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that Yahweh, who is the God that never leaves nor forsakes, has represented himself with them inside of the fire. So one commentary said this, this is a physical demonstration of God's spiritual presence with the believers in their distress. A graphic fulfillment of the Lord's promise from Isaiah 43 too. I'm going to read that. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. All right, so we got Red Sea. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. We've got the Jordan River. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned the flames will not set you ablaze. And so the Lord promised his presence with his people, ensuring that their trials and difficulties would not utterly overwhelm them. And so we see this God who has been telling them, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, even into the fire. So how is this king going to respond now to this? It was a big chunk. Stay with me. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, catch the, catch the lineup here. We've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on one side, and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was not even the smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and, and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, and here's a new decree, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now that last part, I laughed out loud when I read it. It's kind of cute that the king of Babylon, who could not even protect his own guards from the fire that he built, thinks he can protect Yahweh and his people better than Yahweh protected his people from the king's fire. That's insanity. But he's got to save face, right? If, I mean, if you can't beat him, join him, right? And he realized he just lost big. Well, yeah, 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 um, let's, let's pivot this. Like, yeah, I'm with you all. Like, great is your God, and I will protect him as well. He's going to join my group of people, but Yahweh doesn't join his group of people either. What we do get, the redeeming part of that is maybe we get a little sense that the king is having a change of heart. Let's give him that credit, possibly. There's a change in loyalties that he's including Yahweh in his group of gods that he believes he should be loyal to. But him thinking that he can protect God is ridiculous, and probably, once again, just the king's attempt to say, all right, all right, uh, let, me, let me figure out how to use this energy for my purposes so that the whole group of people doesn't just turn against me. 
Now, there's a lot that can be taken from these verses, from this story. And again, I encourage you, read Daniel 6 about Daniel in the lion's den, because it's a very similar thing, even being thrown down into a pit, being thrown down into a fire. The language reflects itself. It plays out two times inside of this book, and it's significant for the meme. But there's a lot of things I, I think we can pull out from this. One is that we should just be faithful in the midst of trials, right? Amen? That we should trust God with everything, even our lives. Amen? That God never leaves or forsakes, and somehow, some way, He makes ways for people to continue walking in the ways of, of, uh, uh, that He has established through His law, but as an example of righteous resistance, which is what we are studying throughout these next couple of months. There's a conflict. You can call them prefects, you can call them officials, or you can call them powers and dominions and authorities and powers, as Ephesians calls them. But we have two sides. The people with royal power, understood as Nebuchadnezzar turns up the heat over and over, and then the righteous power of the three men representing God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand righteous because they are being challenged and threatened to compromise their covenant relationship with God through a display of worship to another God. Let me use marriage language because I think that communicates a little better in our day and age. Nebuchadnezzar's requirement to bow down to the idol was a violation of a covenant similar to that of someone cheating on their spouse. But they remained steadfast in their monogamous covenant commitment to Yahweh as the one and only true God. Do you see what's happening here? And so they couldn't bow down. So these three men stand as righteous because they were refusing to give up that faithfulness to their God, but then they stand resistant because they refuse just in general to do what is being asked of them. They didn't bow even under the threat of death, so their faith, their faith held even though there were consequences, and they believed God would save them, listen to this, from death or through death. Do you see the level of, of uh, confidence they get to step? Like, look, even if you kill me, I get to go and be with my God. And so we see the words of Paul echoed there. It is to live as Christ and to die is gain. No matter what you do to me, you can try to scare me. You can put on all of these things. You can force me to conform to the extent that you might be able to force me to conform, but I will not bow to this God. And I want to point out as well, though, as we started this, that there are earthly powers that are often unseen behind them. The forceful nature of King Nebuchadnezzar to use violence to get worship displays a kind of demonic power that empires tend to use when they want to maintain control and keep their subjects loyal. They turn up the heat. Divine power, on the other hand, is represented in Yahweh's people. These three men quietly refusing to compromise, willing to accept their faith because they will not, under any circumstances, change their allegiance to God. And it is manifested, the spiritual part, as a fourth man in the fire. So there's a contrast theme in this book of Daniel. It's highly symbolic. It's all throughout the whole book. And they're not just asking to bow down to this inanimate golden statue. There was a demonic force behind it trying to usurp the God of the Hebrews, assert dominance over their God, and then gain the loyalties of God's people into his own and so we see this, and you understand it, right? You've heard it before. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We get that. But make no mistake, the battle that we wage on behalf of our God is a battle that has real-life flesh and blood ramifications. 
So there's times when we see the power of God's people standing face to face with evil empires. And when we do, there are also angels standing behind God's people, as we heard Pepe Montenegro testify in his time. But there are also demonic powers standing and squaring up for battle as we engage in righteous resistance against things that maybe we don't fully understand. And I saw this picture online. I feel like it clearly puts on display these two themes. Now, this is a famous picture. Look at who's squared up. It's a standoff taking place between good and evil. Maybe even unbeknownst to the players on the field that there are spiritual realities behind it pouring into it. And so it works itself out in physical manifestations like the suppression of voter capabilities, which is what's happening here. Jim Crow laws, redlining, unfair treatment by law enforcement, inequitable opportunities for education and employment, and which in the end is ultimately refusal to acknowledge the Imago Dei, the image of God, and the humanity in all people. So in this picture, we see not just the line of two different opinions, but a righteous resistance disrupting the demonic power of white supremacy, disrupting the demonic power that people are not people, that humanity doesn't have its right in and of itself. It is an affront to the Imago Dei, and it is a testimony that in the end, the demonic forces don't win. Listen to this. On their website, this is a, a kind of a multi-group, um, uh, by that I mean multi-denominational, there isn't any one kind of category that they fit in, um, Christians for Social Action, it's a conglomeration of Christian voices. And they use a different term, but essentially righteous resistance, and I'll read from there, is a way to confront social oppression directly without the use of weapons or causing physical harm to one's oppressors. Although the roots of nonviolent civil resistance strategies go back centuries as early as the Roman Empire, nonviolent resistance techniques only begin to become perfected and widely adopted in the 20th century. We owe much of our knowledge about the efficacy, principles, and dynamics of nonviolent civil resistance to the black church, who relied heavily on these techniques in their struggle against Jim Crow segregation in the American South. It continues, in the philosophy and practice of nonviolence, to quote theologian Walter Wink, black Christians found a method that showed oppressors can be confronted without being mirrored. Ever since the Jim Crow system collapsed because of a largely faith-based civil resistance, oppressed people from around the world have looked to the civil rights movement as a testimony to what can happen when ordinary people organize themselves to confront oppressive systems. Now, I was listening to a journalistic account. This picture comes from the march um, from Montgomery to uh, Selma. And it was giving an account of three people who were there. And um, in one account, there was a clergyman who was during his march talking to the people around him, and in particular, two women, one who was sitting on the left, or walking on the left, one on the right. And then he said this. One said, I've tried to register to vote 16 times and I've been turned down 16 times, and I'm going to keep trying to register. On the other side of me on the right said that, there, said that she had been in Bloody Sunday, had been in a lot of marches, and was going to continue. Now, Bloody Sunday was the first of three marches. This is the third one, and in the first, 
They were beaten by the officers. So as I heard this, I just kept thinking, this is the spirit of God's people reflecting the sentiment of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like, oh, you want to threaten me with violence? I was at Bloody Sunday. You want to threaten me by saying you're just going to outwork me, outweigh me? I've been in marches. I'm going to keep being in marches. I tried 16 times, and 16 times I was denied, and I'm not giving up now. Do you hear the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, I will not bow to you? My God will deliver me from your majesty's hands, but even if he does not, I want you to know we will not bow down to you. And you see this play out over and over as righteous resistance continues to become a Christian practice, a discipline embraced today that is well-worn from the scriptures beginning to end and even as we saw in the civil rights movement. And so here's the question. Common ground. Where are you being called to righteously resist today? Where are you being called to deny an empire to resist bowing down to the ideologies that are incongruent with Yahweh? Where are you being called to insert yourself on behalf of others and to say, Lord, be with me. I will fight this fight no matter what threat comes my way, and I will not bow down to the ways of this world. But it has to match with Mishpat. It has to be for the quartet of the vulnerable. It has to be in the way of us saying, I'm going to take on the burdens of the most vulnerable in my society, and it has to be done in a type of righteous resistance that does not match the violence of the oppressor. Now, as we close, I want to show you something I believe is just something about this that was revealed to me um, along my study during this week, and it's just simply this, um, and I realize this, this, is not, this is not a random idea that I put together. This is actually, uh, many people will say, you cannot read the book of Revelation without understanding the book of Daniel. Now, that's not a statement on end time stuff. You can um, as squirmy as could possibly be if you wanted to try and tack me down on where I stand on the end times, but... This is a very, a very connected book with one to the other, and I didn't catch it until this last week, but it just is this. That Nebuchadnezzar specifically says that he wants the worship of what, what peoples? Every nation, every language, and every people. This is what he commanded. I want all of your worship. And he is willing to kill and use fear to force anyone in his way to do that. And as earthly powers and unseen powers attempt to demand the worship of themselves, their idols and false guards, the antithesis is the redemption that takes place in the vision that we have been holding up since the beginning of this year. That instead of force, Yahweh comes at it like this. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. No one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Standing before the throne is a powerful warmonger. Nope. Is a lamb wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around. Once again, we have something spiritual behind the physical. 
around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Because they had to? No. They cried out, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. And Revelation tells us that there is a different power and a different kind of leader, a different God who willingly becomes the slain lamb, who willingly takes on the violence onto himself for his people on their behalf and gives his life for his people in order to cultivate not fear but adoration so that every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to know him. I'm going to pray these words of praise as we close today. And as the team comes up uh, and we respond together, Serena will lead us through that. This is the heart that I want on our lips, that the king who has earned our adoration, not with fear, but out of sacrifice, and has said there is a different way to righteously resist. Follow me and I will teach you. Pray with me. So, Lord, thank you for the example from Scripture. We can go to Moses. We can go uh, to the prophets. We can go into the New Testament and see all of the ways in which we have been in a situation uh, encountering evil empires and intentionally resisting them. So, God, what is it that we are intended to resist? God, make our hearts clear that we would not go to battle on our own behalf, but on behalf of the quartet of the vulnerable. That orphans, widows, immigrants, and the poor would know safety in our day. Would know that there is advocacy for them. Would know that there is a way in which they are being represented. That their voices are being given to them in the public square, in the private sectors, inside of political sectors. God, whatever that would look like. Because in the end, we want to see as many people cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.